you tumultuous tigers out there. Welcome to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your co-hosts, Casey, and I am here with the wonderful Sarah. How are you, Sarah? I'm okay. I feel like tumultuous was not a bad choice of words for for life right now. Life is chaos. I almost introduced myself as Sarah today, so that's where it we're at. It seems like you were enunciating <laughs> very clearly. It's like, I feel like she's really choosing her Trying. <laughs> you did it. Yeah, you did it. We were successful. Step one. Yes, <laughs> yes. Heck yeah. So we are, we're going to kind of jump right into things today. I want to real quick touch base with what we talked about last week, where you challenged us to plan milkweed planting to help our monarch butterfly friends. We're going to talk about monarchs more tonight, but those monarchs were classified by the IUCN as endangered on the IUCN red list. And so one of the things that we can all do for this endangered species is to give them some habitat, which those monarchs need milkweed for the babies so Casey this was the the homework or the challenge that you gave us did you where are you at with with milkweed in your in your lovely new home great question so my dad is a landscaper for my birthday he actually planned out our front of our house and it got installed this week yeah. It got installed this week. I talked right it over did. It. It's so pretty. Um, and it doesn't have milkweed right now, but it does have several other native species as I asked for. So it's got coneflower, it's got heliopsis, it's got um Joe Pieweed, which is a big butterfly favorite, and some other fun stuff that adds color. And we've already seen some butterflies on it, which we really hadn't. I mean, we we really had exclusively invasive species in turf grass in our yard. That's what our entire yard was. Now we've got some non-native like uh, boxwoods in there, but for the most part, it is native perennials. And I have a spot that we're going to extend the bed over and hopefully add some milkweed on the sunny side of the house. So uh, I've got my plan, but I also have some of those food for adult butterflies too. So I'm very excited. That's awesome. I'm super jealous. I want to see pictures. I will send pictures. Yes. Excellent. (laughs) So I got frustrated a lot because I'm still trying to find local places near me where I can find things that I want. And I'm just really struggling to find a place to go. But um, I did do a little more reading and thinking about where I would actually put my milkweed. And a couple of things that I wanted to mention that we didn't necessarily talk about too much. We did talk about how milkweed can be toxic, which ties into the monarch's color and how they kind of advertise that to other animals that they don't taste good because of, in part, what they're eating. Milkweed can also be toxic to your pets. So it's something to think about if you have a dog, say, that goes outside and eats plants like mine does. Now, I do think that it's not super common because it's not a very good tasting plant. So most of the time, your pets are probably not going to eat this. But because I let my dog out in the yard and don't sit there and watch him and I know that he eats things, that kind of led me to think, well, I'm going to find a spot in the front yard for this. And I actually have currently a some sort of clump of non-native plants that are right by sort of my front porch. And I want to take those out anyway, because I'm not doing anything with them or maintaining them. And so I think that might be a nice spot. 
for some milkweed. Excellent. I did also read an article, and I don't know if you know much about this, Casey. It, it was just one article talking about a study where they looked at the sort of organization of milkweed around other plants, and they found that milkweed kind of around the perimeter rather than kind of interspersed with lots of other plants had a higher amount of eggs laid on it. I don't remember all of the ins and outs of it, but I just thought that was interesting. Didn't say that you like can't plant milkweed in a clump with other plants, but it might be more successful if it's around the edges or away from other plants. Yeah, I am just have the article pulled up now. Fascinating. I am so excited to read more into it because- I think def- it's older, right? I mean, the article might be current, but I it's... think the information is a few years old. Ooh, good question. Um, Yeah, the article that it's on is from 2020 and it's through the University of Kentucky and it's from December, 2019. So it's actually not that old. It's, it's fairly bad. new. Yeah. Um, I actually ran across an article as well that was provocatively titled something along the lines of the plan to save monarchs is backfiring or something like that, which I was like, <laughs> click. Oh, All right. I need to know what's going on. <laughs> and basically what they were doing is calling attention to something that we talked briefly about in our last episode, which is if you're planting milkweed in your yard, make sure that it is a native species of milkweed yes. rather than a tropical species, because the tropical species can actually trick the butterflies into not migrating on their proper timeline. And so making sure you select those properly instead of doing the very pretty, but not helpful tropical milkweed in areas it's non-native to is another really good way to make sure that we're acting on conservation with as much knowledge as we need to make sure that it's successful. All right. Well, good for us. Check on our challenge from Homework last week. Complete. But, <laughs> but not stopping there. We have no. to carry out our, our plans eventually. So, which yes. that will be, I'm so excited to finally have milkweed because, again, this is a thing that I've just talked about for a long time just as a conservation educator and have not yet done. So, I'll be excited when I finally get my milkweed. All right, Casey. My question for you, I'm going to shout out our friend Rebecca for this. We, in our previous job, we used to have to come up with sort of those getting to know you icebreaker type questions of the week, weekly. And Rebecca would always come up with questions that I would not have come up with. And I remember her asking this before. So my question for you, we're just talking about color today if you had to choose a color to represent you oh no (laughs) i told you not a question i would have come up with dang it rebecca (laughs) what color would you be and why okay so as a kid my favorite color was blue and i think i'm gonna go with blue even though my current favorite color be green i think blue has a lot of depth to it and a lot of variation which are all pleasing not to like talk myself up around mostly that I like blue but also that it it can vary anywhere from like a calming sort of thing Mm -hmm. to maybe a little melancholy and I would say that's like a little bit within my personality too but it's also got sort of a, a depth to it that can be explored a little bit more maybe and that's I'm not going to talk anymore because I'm happy with that answer and I like I'm it. stopping here blue <laughs> I like it it also makes me laugh because my favorite color is green 
but as I've gotten older, blue has has worked its way up, up and I feel like blue and green have to be the most common favorite colors for people. I just feel like they're very common choices, both of those things. Well, we know green has like a biologically like beneficial component for Mm -hmm. human health. Like there's lots of studies showing paint your room green, blues generally common and calming. Um, But uh, yeah, anytime someone's like, I like yellow, like what? Tell me more. I need to understand this. (laughs) Well, I mean, yellow, it's like bright and sunshiny and happy. I guess. Depends (laughs) on the yellow. I... I think that Rebecca would roll her eyes when I gave this answer. She's heard it before, but I'm some kind of like tan or khaki or like (laughs) beige. I am though. And it's like, I don't say it as a negative. Those are not my favorite colors, but just, I feel like I, that's, it's very neutral. It tries to get along with everything else. I'm not going to make waves. I'm not going to try to fight for the center of attention, but I'm going to try to be there and do my job and get along with all of the other colors around me. You know, you are, so the reason I laughed is because at our last job, we wore exclusively tan. for the majority of my career (laughs) I like that's all I think of anytime I think of like tan and is khaki it's just khaki on khaki all the time um and guys not even like a Steve Irwin cool khaki nope Nope. bad um so that's why I laughed at first because that was the first connotation but I think actually you're right like you you are it is a a classic neutral it complements everything around it and you are someone who is just very easy to get along with. You try and and see both sides. Think. All right. Yeah, you nailed it. You nailed yourself. Perfect. I like it. Yes. All right. Well, there you go. That's that's your intro for the day. We're going to talk about color. We're going to talk about how we perceive color, how animals perceive color, and what color can do in nature. So stick around for that discussion. Welcome, everybody, to a talk about color. I hope this will be just a fun, quick little discussion. I was really, Casey, inspired by you last week by our talk of monarchs, and we talked a little bit about beauty and nature and how cool it was that these sort of utilitarian things are pretty to us. And also, we talked about the importance of the monarch color and the way that they use color as a warning to let other creatures know that they don't taste very good. And so that just kind of inspired me to want to do uh, to go a little deeper and to talk a little bit more about the importance of color in nature. And Casey, this is something that I sort of feel like I know the basics of. And yet when I started to read just just in general, just the very like not even getting into color in nature, but just reading about color and how we see color. I was very quickly overwhelmed. <laughs> color is just 
reality. People can perfectly explain how this works to me and I will still not really be able to wrap my head around exactly. the mechanism. I think part of it is I don't really understand light either. Mm-hmm. And again, not like intellectually, right. I understand I can the ex- you mechanism. You could give me a test. Yep. Right. I could pass the test. It's the concept like with the James Webb telescope up in space Mm. right now where they're like yeah but the light that we're seeing now is actually from 13 billion years ago so like it's the past and i'm like watched hank green's video yes (laughs) yes and the past is all direct i know so anyway i still don't understand it but this is all to say that I will be along for this ride and I'm probably going to be like, whoa, sometimes because I know these things and yet still they hurt my brain. So let's get into it. So let's start with just let's start at the very beginning. We see light on what we call we see the visible spectrum of light is what we refer to it as. This is visible for us as people. Casey, do you know the colors on the visible light spectrum? Sure do. Excellent. Roy G. Biv, yeah. right? Yeah. It's the rainbow. I've got a rainbow boa, and her name is Biv because of that spectrum. That's just the best thing. <laughs> um, so it's red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, indigo violet. Yeah. We throw indigo in there like it's like common. Part of, yeah, yeah. Part of the party, but it's yeah. like, yeah, it's a little bit more. Yeah, it's the thinker one. <laughs> It's so funny. I don't remember actually learning Roy G. Biv. I remember my, you know, in school or anything when I was learning my colors, but I remember my mom telling me that this was how she remembered. And so ever since that's how I knew it. This is Roy G. Biv. So, so there you go. And the way that we see these colors is based on the wavelengths that are reflected back from the object. So we've got light, right? And light is made up of these different wavelengths. And so these wavelengths are coming at the object. The object is going to absorb some wavelengths and it's going to reflect some wavelengths. And so we're seeing back based on whatever that w- those wavelengths are that are reflected at us. And then obviously these are perceived in, in our eyes. We have different types of cells to help us see things. We have those rods that help us to see in low level light, but the what helps us to see colors, we've talked about this before, are the cones, cones see colors. And humans, we have trichromatic color vision. So we have three types of cone cells for red, green, and blue. Apparently, we have six to seven million cones in a 0.3 millimeter spot in our retina. Again, these are just things that I can't comprehend. It doesn't make sense to me. Your body is a miracle. (laughs) For real. (laughs) The fact that all of this works together Uh, is crazy. unbelievable. So what's interesting, too, we're trichromatic, so we have those cones Obviously, we see a lot more than those three colors, and that's based on, from my understanding, is how those different types of cones are activated by different wavelengths. So if we see, if there's yellow light wavelengths being reflected back at us, Casey, I have that 
yeah, color spectrum here. here. So what is that? Like 570 to 580 nanometers is the wavelength for yellow light. Those wavelengths are going to trigger probably more the green and then the red receptors, not so much the blue. And it's sort of that combination of how much is getting triggered by these wavelengths that our brains sort of put together these colors, which is just amazing. But it gets even more incredible when you think about the fact that we don't all see color in the same way as living beings. So the way that my dog sees the world is different than the way that I see the world, the way that other animals see the world. They're perceiving these things so what we what we call colors like if I look at a flower and say oh that's a purple flower another creature might see that flower entirely differently so my mom is an interior designer and so Mm -hmm. color is a lot of her job and I like she could look at an outfit and be like it doesn't match and it took me a very 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 long time and I can't say I'm 100% past it to understand what the heck she was talking about and her current job, she's been struggling because she's like, there's no right answer because it's all about colors and different people have different opinions. And Mm -hmm. so what's pleasing to one human is not pleasing to another. And then you just think we are one species within this whole spectrum of life. It's, and yet peacocks exist. And yet like all these beautiful creatures are around us. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. So then flipping it over to how living things other than people see color. We want to talk about that too. And and how do we know? How do I know? I remember growing up, people used to say that dogs were colorblind, that dogs yes. couldn't see color at all. There's a joke in the movie Up at the end credits where they're like playing a game being like, oh, red car, blue car. And yeah. then Doug is like, gray car. Oh, I forgot about Gray that. car. Gray car. <laughs> Well done. Well done, Casey. I pulled out the Disney reference on that one. But yes, yeah, no, I thought that it was all black and white for them. Yes. So that's not necessarily true, but they do see a smaller spectrum of colors than we do. Now, I cannot go into exactly what every individual animal sees, nor do we know exactly what or how every individual animal sees color, but we're starting to learn more. So what we just talked about, the types of cells that we have in our retinas to help us perceive color, we can look at that now in other animals. So we can look at the structure of their eyes to learn about how they're seeing the world. And there are also tests that you can do by showing animals different colors and seeing what they respond to in different ways. So by doing more and more of that research, we're starting to learn a little bit more about what animals see. So other primates tend to have similar color vision to us, and we can talk as we go along about why that might be important for them. Dogs and cats are dichromatic, so they only have two types of color receptors, so they are going to see the world in probably a little bit less color or different color than we do. But then some other animals that you might think of as being very colorful often have really good color vision and sometimes more receptors than we do. So animals like birds oftentimes will have excellent color vision. Insects are, in my mind, things like insects and some reptiles are where things just start to get even crazier. 
because they can see beyond what we can see. A lot of insects see beyond our range of that visible light. So they see beyond Roy G. Biv into ultraviolet light. So these are wavelengths that are even shorter than that violet end of the spectrum. I read somewhere that butterflies would generally have about six different types of photoreceptors in in their eyes to perceive color, but it can go beyond that even. I believe one article I was reading mentioned up to 10 different types of photoreceptors. So just imagine the, the world that they're seeing. And then we have reptiles, which can vary. Some have better or worse color vision, but then you've got some snakes that are seeing infrared. So they have these special organs called pit organs that help them to basically, if you think about like heat goggles or something like that, uh, but seeing beyond the other end of the spectrum there. So there's quite a, quite a diverse range. And so we want to talk about what that means and how that works and why color is even important. Why can these animals see all these things and and what good does it do them? So Casey, when you think about color in nature, what pops to mind? Are there certain species or certain things that you think about when you think about color? Well, so plants use color too. So um, I love primates. And one of the reasons that color vision is important to us primates is because it helps us determine from far away whether or not fruits are ripe, because as they ripen, they turn to a certain color. And you might think, why would the tree want you to see the fruit? Does it want to get eaten? And the answer is, Yes, as far as a tree can want, it does want to get eaten. (laughs) And so so it helps us be able to identify them and then spread their seeds. So that's actually the first thing I think of is is color in plants. I love that. And that is why I specifically, I changed that sentence around in our outline there to not just feed animals, because I think that it it is really important because I think flowers are maybe the first thing that a lot of people think of when they think about color too, which is also important. We'll talk about that as we go along. I tend to think about the bright and shiny though. So yeah, yeah, so you're thinking about the fruit. I, you know, you think about the flowers, you think about the peacocks, right? Mm -hmm. The flamingos, the butterflies, butterflies, all of those things that are maybe the more eye-catching things and we will talk about those but that is just a small part of what we want to think about when we're thinking about color in nature there are going to be times that you want to stand out that we'll talk about but a lot of times at least within the animal kingdom we we talk about blending in and so camouflage is related to color and and the way that animals are going to see color so let's talk about some different types of camouflage. Again, this is something that we have all learned about from the time that we're little. We understand what what camouflage is, but there are so many cool ways that animals can camouflage. And the first one is is maybe the most basic. And you can find sort of different categories of this out there if you look too. But we'll talk about concealing coloration, which is exactly what it sounds like. This is just basically trying to match your background. This is me dressed in my khaki work outfit, standing up against a khaki wall, just 
just blending in. Yes. So, <laughs> so with animals, we think about things like the Arctic fox, maybe you've seen, or uh, what is it? The snowshoe hare that will change their fur color based on the seasons. So in the wintertime, they're going to have that white coat to blend right in. In the springtime, they're going to have a brown coat because being white against a brown background isn't going to help anybody blend in. But you can also think about that with animals you might see in your own backyard, like deer or the rabbits that we have around here, or even animals like lions, just being that that kind of solid tan color in on the savanna there. So again, like we talked about, this is this would be sort of my go-to. I feel like if I were an animal, this would be my survival strategy just to, to blend in. Um, and that's what all of this is, right? This is a survival strategy that these animals have. Their coloration helps them to blend in, whether that's a prey species trying to stay hidden or a predator species who is trying to be able to sneak up on its prey here. That's the purpose of it. And it can vary between the sexes as well. So like for a lot of birds, the males tend to be the more flamboyantly colored ones where the females tend to have this concealing coloration to help them blend in when they're taking care of the eggs. Yep. That's a very good point. So let's take a step further now on our our camouflage journey. Countershading. Are you familiar with countershading? Yes. This is one that... I thought that I was familiar with, then I I think that I understood part of it, but there's maybe a little more to it than I previously understood. Can you talk a little bit about countershading, Casey, and what you're familiar with? So if you guys picture a, a lot of species of birds or a dolphin, I feel like is like mm-hmm. the prime aquatic version that maybe a lot penguins, of people- Penguins, maybe? Penguins. Penguins are actually an excellent one. So you have to think about penguins- in where they're at a lot of their time in their lives is they're in the ocean and they're swimming. So they're horizontal. So that black side ends up on the top and the white side ends up on the bottom. And so if you are above them and you're looking down, that dark side is blending in with the water. And if you're a predator from underneath them and you look up, you will see that light side, which is blending in with the brightness of the sun. And so a lot of animals in the ocean are countershaded. And then also in the sky, (laughs) we see a lot of that too. And some animals on the ground too. Weirdly, snakes have a lot of countershading as well. And even like ball pythons who aren't up in trees as much. I don't know. I'm And, and I don't know the purpose to, to that one, but yeah. even some j- just terrestrial and maybe a lot more than we even think about like deer again, have those lighter yes. bellies, even lions have the lighter bellies on, yep. on the back. And so, yes, what you talked about, Casey, I feel like is what I was most familiar with countershading. What I started reading about was like a whole new, and again, I only sort of grasp it, but it has to do with what they call self-shadow concealment. So if you think about, like you were talking about, we are eyes and brains for us and animals, we think of light is typically coming down from above, right? And so light shining on these animals, they're going to be brighter on their dorsal surface or on their back surface than they are on their bellies, typically from just if just light were shining down. So what this countershading does, I guess, is sort of trick the eye a little bit and mess up the 
animals sort of 3D perception of these animals. So animals are going to be darker on the surface that receives more light and lighter on this the darker underbelly, if you will. And so I guess that's tr- that where it talks about self-shadow concealment is it's trying to cancel out that perception of light shining down on the back. So that was not something huh. that I was familiar with. And it just sort of blew my mind a, a little bit because I, th- what you were describing is something that I can sort of see right and understand well it's basically the same thing it's concealing coloration but but just like splits and halfsies depending but what you're talking about is altering perception entirely like that's pretty cool right and that's that's sort of the idea of it similar to the next one that i want to talk about with the, the the goal is the same of just sort of messing with what the sort of expected presentation of an animal would be is disruptive coloration. And so this is where we get into thinking about markings on animals. So your spots, your stripes, your black and white colored animals, just disruptive coloration can kind of help to break up the animal's outline. Again, sort of tricking the brain from what it's expecting to see in this animal sort of 3D appearance. So Lots of animals have this disruptive coloration. Think of all our cats. You can think about animals like zebras or giraffes even that have these these different types of markings. What's interesting is the variety of markings. And I guess it's probably intuitive, but these different markings can help animals depending on what type of habitat that they live in so why is it that we have again i'm a cat person our lions with our fairly plain coats there are some light spots there if you really look but we have our our lions with those plain coats we have our tigers with the stripes we have our leopards and our jaguars with these sort of open spots why do all of these patterns exist and there's actually been some study done on that too so there, the University of Bristol did some research. This is from back in 2010. But basically, they looked at images of uh, different cat species and analyzed how these patterns kind of fit in to different environments. And they found that cats that lived in open and well-lit environments tend to have more of the plain coat, whereas cats that live in a forested habitat or are more active at night in darker lighting are going to be the ones that have those spots and stripes, which is pretty interesting. It's still not 100% clear to, I mean, there's so much variety, you know? So uh, to to still think about how that came to be or, or why that would be is interesting to me. But I think that that is kind of interesting and does explain, you know, the difference in, say, a lion versus a tiger coat and why one would be uh, more helpful to the other. It's interesting too how color perception of the other animals around them can play into the pattern a little bit. So thinking about tigers and their stripes, you can imagine looking at a tiger and trying to imagine 
this animal moving through the forest and there's trees and there's different patterns of light and dark. I could see, I could make that work that stripes make sense to help blend them in. And that idea of this disruptive coloration, breaking up their body outline. But what's interesting is maybe the bright orange coats <laughs> that these right. tigers have that you might look at again, us as humans and be like, how's that going to help? Uh, these tigers blend in. But Casey, I know you know this. Do you, you want to talk a little bit about how that bright orange coat kind of factors in with some of the tigers' prey species? Yeah, a lot of the main prey species of tigers include deer species and pig species, especially. And they are red green colorblind basically so if you know humans can be red green colorblind mm -hmm. we can't tell the difference between those two colors and so imagine how like dense and lush the jungle is or up in a more uh tiger habitat how those conifer coniferous trees are around that area too there's a lot of green to blend into and so that that orange can actually basically melt into the green yeah. for those prey species so now, I, I think that the whole disruptive coloring is really interesting because if you can imagine that you're an animal and you see like, um, yeah, it's green, but it's a green in the shape of a cat or something, <laughs> you're still going <laughs> to yeah. know that like, that's a cat right there. That's a yeah. tiger. But because they have those black stripes, it helps them then again, trick the prey's eye. And for a lot of those prey species, they tend to have eyes on the sides of their heads. So they're not seeing as clearly around their peripheral vision as like we or the tiger see mm -hmm. directly up front so it it should give them basically they're just trying to buy time to get closer and closer right. and so that color just is helping them close that distance which i think is really interesting yeah you're right it all works together that um, disruptive coloration plus just the, the the idea that this bright color to us is not perceived as such by those animals that the tiger is trying to hunt is is fascinating it's just really interesting how everything all works together so a couple of different types of camouflage there. Another thing that you'll hear often when you think about color and patterns in nature with animals is this idea of mimicry. And this was another thing that came up in my mind when we were talking about monarch butterflies last week. There's a few different types of mimicry that you might be familiar with. Maybe at some point or another, you learned this back in school. Uh, Batesian and Mullerian mimicry are maybe the two most common types that you'll hear about. And interestingly, both of these have been related to monarch butterflies in the past. But uh, Batesian mimicry is basically when two species are similar in appearance but only one of which is would be considered perhaps dangerous. Whether that means that it's unpalatable, it's poisonous, it has something like a bee has a stinger that could be harmful to whatever is trying to catch it. So what would be the benefit here, Casey, or how does Batesian mimicry work? So basically, if another species looks similar enough to the actual dangerous species, the predator that might otherwise try and mess with them doesn't want to take the risk knowing that the species that they resemble is dangerous. Yeah. Now the flip side of that is if they dilute that, like a lot of these animals mm -hmm. are not necessarily like, we don't necessarily know that they are instinctively know, for example, that uh, monarch butterflies taste bad. 
it's just maybe that bird tastes it's a monarch butterfly. Trial and, and like, error. Yeah. yeah. I don't want that. Right. But I know that orange one tastes bad and then looks at all the orange ones and they're like, I'm not even going to try it. However, if these basically fakers decide that not decide, basically if the fakers <laughs> compose enough of the population that this trial and error ends up showing the predators that like, yeah, maybe some of them are gross, but most of them are good. It will dilute that impact of the color. So it's really a like natural balance that they have to strike. Yeah. So with Batesian mimicry, it's probably more helpful if the population of actual bad tasting or whatever yeah. it is, is much higher than at least that high enough yeah. mimic species. So that's kind of where the other type, this Mullerian mimicry comes in as well. And that's where species might look similarly both of them are going to be distasteful or poisonous or, or whatever the case may be. And they look similar to each other. So that avoids that sort of problem. And it it just increases the likelihood. It sort of increases the protection for both of those species. So it's just a quick example. Batesian mimicry would be like there are certain fly species that will mimic the bright coloration of bees or wasps for example that are completely harmless mullerian mimicry now this is where the monarch typically falls you may have heard about the monarch butterfly and the viceroy and people have gone back and forth as they study this over which type of mimicry this was but at least last i heard we're still leaning towards that this is mullerian mimicry that probably both the monarch and the viceroy butterfly are fairly distasteful to species and then a third type of mimicry that maybe you don't hear about as often it's a little bit different but it can be referred to as self-mimicry and this is where one body part might mimic another so you think eye spots on like moths in particular you see that a lot those kind of big circles on towards the back of the wing that that look like eyes um there are some like snake species where the head and the tail look very similar. So this is, again, just messing with that perception of either potential predators or potential prey species to be like, to to not know which end is what and what's going on, where an attack's going to come from, where it's safe to attack, that sort of thing. So uh, that's a, a good form of protection as well. All right, so we've talked a little bit about those dull colors blending in as a a protection. We've talked a little bit about colors looking similar, colors disrupting patterns. Let's talk a little bit about those bright colors, Casey. So we've we've touched on this a lot, but what why again, for me, if I were an animal that blending into the background, I don't want anybody to know where I am. That seems like it makes sense to me, you know, play it safe, you want to be hidden. You don't want a predator to be able to catch you. If I'm a predator, I want to stay hidden as long as possible until I get close to my prey. So what possible advantage is it to have these bright colors? Why would an animal sort of want to be seen? We talked about it a little bit with the monarch caterpillars. They have some of that bright striping there that perhaps they're advertising their presence because they know that they're distasteful or dangerous in a way and so i like to think of here you have poison dart frogs as an example so they don't care if you see them you're still not going to eat them um it's a warning to the predators of them but also like on the other flip side you've got coral snakes 
Mm -hmm. Coral snakes are venomous, so you also don't want to mess with them because you don't want them to bite you. And so they've got bright striping of like the um, red and the white and the black. It's just a different survival strategy to me. And I don't know why it's so fascinating. I think it's because there is still sort of that risk involved, right? So even if you're like, here, see me, here I am, you don't want to mess with me, but here I am. Some of you are going to die still, right? Or some of you are going to get, right. me- you know, like, messed with for sure. Right. Like, I don't yeah, want it's some a bold giant strategy. bird coming and picking me up and dropping me, uh, you know? So right. it's, it is interesting, but that's exactly what it is. It's like, hey, I have the freedom to go and do what I want and walk where I want and go look for the food that I want to look for because I'm letting everybody know that they don't want a part of me. So that's, Part of it, for sure, is that the warning color. Colors can also be used for attraction as well. So you talked about those male birds, for sure. I mean, the the peacock is your classic example. If you've ever seen a peahen, a female, they are very drab in comparison. (laughs) The but those there's not a whole lot more beautiful, I think, than a peacock feather. If you've ever you know seen one up, up close gorgeous we think of all of our butterfly wing patterns all of the different sort of designs on those wings and and we think that there's there's uv patterns there as well that those butterflies can signal to each other so a lot of times those bright colors can be a sign of health and are you know attracting to the other species so that's definitely a- another reason to go with those bright colors to kind of show off. Colors like you talked about with plant species, though, can also be a good way to find food. So we talked about it with the fruit. And yes, we fruit wants to be eaten. That helps spread the seeds and uh, repopulate that plant as well. There's some other strategies as well. We talked about flowers being brightly colored. Different colored flowers are going to be attractive to different types of insects. So both the color and the shape of flowers help to attract the species that they need. And those flowers need the insects to get pollinated and help those plants to grow. Flowers also have UV sort of signposts for insects to follow. So those insects with that UV ability to see that UV color can find those signposts within the flower petals. An interesting thing to me too is this can also be uh, something that other animals will take advantage of. Are you familiar with these crab spiders at all, Casey? I have seen a video of it, but tell us how they work. Yeah, so these spiders basically reflect light, reflect UV light. So these flowers are typically going to have that UV signal for these insects, but these spiders will sort of manipulate those UV signals coming from the flowers. So sometimes they will actually sit on the flower and ambush prey as they come in attracted to that UV light. And they've even shown with certain species of these crab spiders that they, if there's not any flowers around, they might just sit on a nearby leaf and they're giving off this UV light that attracts insects. They think they're coming in for a flower and they get ambushed by a spider that reflects 
UV light. So all of these interactions, you know, I think about things like that. I think about butterfly wings, for example. I mean, if you ever looked at a butterfly field guide to just see the diversity in the colors and and why, you know, so that's, we talk about it with disruptive coloration and the different patterns that we have. You know, I think that that is, is so fascinating, just the, the variety of things that we have. And so what, what signals, what methods have we not even learned about yet, you know, that these animals are communicating through their colors in some instances that, that we can't even perceive, I think is really fascinating. And I, you know, I just to, to reiterate to what we said last week that I love that all of these colors and patterns do serve such important roles, but it, they also just serve to bring us joy. And I really appreciate that in the world that I can look out the window and see those flowers and it just makes me happy. And then to know that, oh yes, also that orange color is going to be attracting these particular species or, or whatever. Um, I think that it's, it's really cool to know that. And that's what we'll talk a little bit about for your challenge for the week. Casey, anything to add before we wrap up? I think it's just worth noting that um, when we observe species that aren't ourselves, we can't assume just because we're trying to put ourselves in their little heads about what they're doing, mm -hmm. that we're able to understand all the factors that are going on. And I think color is just like one of so many oh ways gosh. that that manifests yeah. itself. And so when you're watching, like you said, on, at your nature time, looking at, at how those colors are interacting, it's going to be really interesting to think about how then all the other beings that share our world get to see them too. For sure. All right. Thanks, Casey. Stick around, everybody. And we will wrap up with your challenges for the week. All right, everybody. Welcome back. A couple of, I think, easy and fun challenges for you this week is really just appreciating the nature around us. I think that color is fascinating. The more that I read about it, if you haven't watched it, there is a several years old now documentary on, it's available on Netflix right now. It's called Life in Color. Have you watched it, Casey? I have watched almost every nature thing on Netflix, That's but it's been I a while. Figured. Yeah. <laughs> yes. This is another Attenborough one. So it's oh, always yes. glorious. You could just have it on and, you know, listen to his soothing voice, but also watch this one because that's the whole point. It's pretty cool. They do go through a lot of the, the things that we talk about, talk about the purposes of these colors, try to give you a glimpse into how some of these other species are perceiving the world. So give that a watch if you haven't. I think it's only a few episodes long. Yeah. So and I think time. it's like three episodes long. And also you're listening to a podcast about color, which is an <laughs> audio format for right. visual phenomena. Yeah. So you should supplement this with some, some viewing. <laughs> yes. With viewing and then also just get out and experience it. So that's challenge number two here is when you're getting your nature time this week, 
pay attention to the colors that you're seeing. What colors are in nature around you? What particularly stands out to you? Enjoy it. That's step one, is to just notice and appreciate those colors. And then if you can, take a picture of something that stands out to you. Learn about it. Why might that thing be colored the way it is? Why does that bird have that particular pattern? Is there anything that you can find out about that particular coloration? If you see something you love, also please feel free to share it with us. Send it to us via email. We'll post it. Tag us in it. Whatever you want to do, share some of that. Share some of that beauty with the rest of your ALG family. Heck yeah. Well, thanks, Sarah. Uh, I think this is a good reminder, too, that there are health benefits to going out into nature and spending a little bit of time out there. So to get the most of it, you want to be spending at least 15 to 20 minutes a day. If you can manage, it's okay if you get it all done in one chunk during the week. And now Sarah has given you something to do. If you're like, what am I even going to do out there? You're going to look at color guys. That's the job. (laughs) (laughs) So that's our challenge for the week. Sarah, if they want to tag us, where should they find us? On Facebook, we're a little greener podcast on Instagram. We are at a little greener pod on Twitter, we are at a greener podcast. You can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. This is not helpful to share your things with us, but we're also on YouTube now, a little greener podcast. You can find us there. Our new episodes should be uploading weekly regularly. We'll try to slowly put our older episodes on there as well. Eventually, we may do some other things with that video format, but for now, it's just another avenue to listen to those episodes if you so choose. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, Sarah, for sharing color with us. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye!